Anybody ready to dig into John 1? Let's go, man. Let's go. Let's go. All right, take your Bibles and turn to John 1. We looked at the first uh, three verses last Sunday, and uh, we're going to cover more ground today. That's my plan, unless I go too long and we have to stop midway. I don't know, right? We, we'll see. But um, John chapter 1, verses 4 to 18, John continues his gospel, and he says, In him was life, and the life was... In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. And he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I love what A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you think about Christ shapes what you think about everything else. Christ is foundational. What you believe, what, what your view is, your convictions centered around the person and work of Christ will determine, will shape everything else that you believe about God, about the Bible, about Christianity. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 3, and it said that Jesus, John was very clear that Jesus is the Word. He's the Logos. And it says that the Word was in the beginning, which lets us know that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is not um, a created being, as the Jehovah Witnesses believe, as the heretic Arius believed. Um, Jesus wasn't created. He is the eternal Son of God, second person of the Holy Trinity. It says not only is the Word was the Word in the beginning, it says the Word was with God. So making it very clear that the Word being Jesus and the Father are separate persons within the triune Godhead. And then it says the Word was God, really just emphatically declaring that Jesus is deity. Jesus is divine, is divine. Now, if you go to verse 14, it defines who the Word is. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word, according to John, is none other than Jesus. And if you missed it in verse 14, check out verse 18, which is what we just read a moment ago. No one has ever seen God. So John straight up out the gate says, No one has ever seen God, the only God. Who is he talking about? Who is at the Father's side? Who is at the Father's side? 
Jesus is. He has made him known. John is crystal clear. So even though some people want to put a, you know, uh, they want to mistranslate verse 1 and, and put in he's a God. Well, verse 14, verse 18, and if you look at the rest of the context of John chapter 1, it is clear that Jesus indeed is God wrapped in human flesh. John is laying a foundation for the rest of his book. So let's jump into the text this morning. John 1, verses 4 and 5. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I also want to read verse 9. I want to connect verse 9 to verses 4 and 5. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Here's point number one. Jesus is the light and is the source of all spiritual truth. He is the light and he is the source of all spiritual truth. This life was not given to him. He is the embodiment, the source of all life. Jesus said on one occasion, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. On one occasion, as he stood next to his uh, friend who was dead, Lazarus, right? What did he say? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Jesus is saying, I am the light. But according to John, according to John, Jesus is the light. I want you to think about this. Not only is Jesus the light, Jesus has always been shining as the light. He's always been shining as the light. This is what the beginning of the Gospel of John is, is telling us in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before anything was made, Jesus was shining, brightly shining, because he's eternal. He's not created. He's shining before creation. The Bible says that in verse 3 of John 1 that he made everything. He's the agent of creation. So in, in eternity's past, he's always been shining brightly as the light. We know that not only is Jesus the light, but he creates the light. According to verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. We talked about this last week. He's the agent of creation. Right? Jesus spoke, and by the power of his word, nothing became everything. The galaxies, the, the black holes, the solar system, the Milky Way galaxy, the planets, the stars, the mountains, the valleys, the oceans. He spoke, and by the power of his word, everything came into being. The first day of creation, it says that God created light. And then he separated the light from the darkness. And then in Genesis 1, it says... And God said, 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 over and over and over again. It's emphasizing, it's emphasizing that Jesus, God, spoke everything into existence. John is laying this mammoth foundational truth, which is glorious, which is foundational. Like if you don't have John 1, like the rest of the gospel doesn't make any sense. The whole point of John's gospel, the purpose, we talked about it last week, is so that all may believe. So throughout the gospel of John, John is presenting Jesus as the son of God. 
He's the son of God by miracles. He's the son of God as people are seeing these miracles and they're, they're declaring that he indeed is the son of God. He's God wrapped in human flesh. In, in verse nine, um, he is seen as the true light. Now some people you know, argue today, there's a lot of debate about Jesus. There's a lot of debate, right? Um, some people argue that, well, he was just a good man. Um, he, he was a great man. Some people say, some people even go so far to say, well, maybe he was a prophet. You know, some people think that he was some Palestinian nutcase, right? Some people think he was this traveling itinerant evangelist. Some people say, no, he was a, a, a social moral reformer. He, he came to live a life of love and do good deeds and help the poor. But the Bible says that he's more than that. I mean, think about this. If someone says, I am God, you have three options. Number one, he's telling the truth. Number two, he's not telling the truth. Or number three, pretty much as C.S. Lewis says, he's flat out crazy. It makes no sense to say that someone is a good man if they say that they're God. In the Old Testament, it was God who created. In the Old Testament, it was God who forgives sins. In the Old Testament, it was God who would judge the sins of people. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the creator. In the New Testament, Jesus says that I can forgive sins. In the New Testament, Jesus says, someday you will stand before me and I will be your judge. And your life will be an open book and you will be accountable to me. If Jesus was not God, here's what you need to do. You need to close your Bible. You need to walk out of this building. And you need to go home. If what Jesus said was not true, he has, he has done the unthinkable. He has literally done the unthinkable. The greatest hoax in human history. It's unbelievable. I mean, if he, if he really wasn't the son of God, if he really didn't rise again from the grave, maybe he wasn't, according to some people, he was a liar. According to some, he's delusional. If that's the case, if he was not telling the truth, if he was flat out crazy in the head, guess, that, guess, guess where that leaves us? That leaves us with no gospel. That leaves us with no good news, right? Because this, this the cosmos and human life and everything is not an accident. Creation points to creator, points to an intelligent designer. There's an intelligent being. There's no way this just randomly just kind of formed and came into being. But the Bible says that the God of glory left heaven's throne and he penetrated the darkness of our world and he took upon flesh and he lived a perfect life and he died for your sins. So that means we have a gospel. We have a good news and the good news is that we can be set free from our sins. Our, our new life, our identity it can, be, can be reconnected to Christ and reconnected to God the Father and our lives can have meaning and purpose and when we die, we will spend eternity with him. Without Christ, there's no gospel. There's no good news. You're left with the message, try harder. Do more. Be better. You know what that is? That hinges on you. But the gospel is not about you. The gospel is for you. 
It's about Christ. He, Christ is the hero of the Bible. He's the hero of every story. The redemptive story is about Christ, what he has done for us. Athanasius, I like what he said. He said, if, speaking of Christ, if he is not of the same essence as God, then we are still in our sins and we are without hope in this world. You know, Jesus had to be divine to pay our debt. When you look at the landscape of the Old Testament, it's so clear that Jesus came to bring spiritual light to a dark world. I want to read Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, so 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah is, is, uh, is recording and, and, and writing, these, uh, uh, um, writing the scripture, and it says, but there, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Remember those two words, those two tribes. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You know, if you lived during the time of Isaiah, this verse would have been shocking to you. Here's why. If God was going to do something spectacular, monumental, right, it would take place at divine headquarters, which is in Jerusalem. But the Messiah, the King, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus from Christ came from Nazareth, a Podunkville little town, right? A little insignificant town in the region of Galilee. In the Old Testament, it tells us there were 12 tribes. Zebulun and Naphtali, they were the northern regions on the outskirts of Israel. Isaiah goes on to say, but in the latter time, he has made, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Notice the phrase, Galilee of the nations. It literally means Galilee of the Gentiles. It's a multi-ethnic region. Now I want you to see Isaiah 9, verse 2, the next verse. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The phrase deep darkness literally means shadow of death. 700 years later, after Isaiah's pen, the gospel writer Matthew pens these words, picks up on this theme, Matthew chapter 4. 12 to 16, now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, which Capernaum, northern region of Israel, that was ministry headquarters. That's where he, he really kind of launched his, his public ministry in that region. It says, Capernaum by the sea, in the territory, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Fulfilled 700 years later. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, Isaiah talks about the glorious way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the, in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. People were living in the death shadow. They were living in the death shadow. In the Old Testament, because there was no Messiah, which means there was no hope, there's, there's no redemption, right? Well, let me back up real quick. There was redemption if you had a forward-looking faith in Yahweh. 
So the saints in the Old Testament, they were believers. Go to the hall of faith, the hall of fame, Hebrews chapter 12. If you were a believer in Yahweh, you were part of the covenant people of God. But for, for the Gentiles, right, no promises, no covenant, no hope, alienated from the promises, everything, um, there, there wasn't a lot of hope. So Matthew is saying this great light has, has dawned. A light has flashed. A light shone upon them, and that light was Jesus. Now between Malachi and Matthew, the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament, there was 400 years where God was silent. There was no revelation. There was no prophetic word. There was no light. There was no hope. And then what does God do? He breaks the silence. Remember what the angel told Joseph in a dream? Remember the, the grand announcement that, that an angel told Joseph, he said, behold the virgin, Mary, the girl that you're getting ready to marry, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When I think about Isaiah and Matthew, this is what it tells me. Several things. Jesus is the glorious light, which is what John is saying. And number two, God didn't leave his people in darkness. He didn't leave his people in darkness. He penetrated the darkness of the world with the light of his son. People were dwelling in darkness, but now they've seen this great light. You know what I call that? Grace. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that, that God steps into human history, that God uses a virgin to bring about the entrance of his only begotten son. It's the grace of God that God pursues sinners like you and I, that we could be forgiven and that our life can be radically changed by the gospel. That's the grace of God. How come you guys go to football games and you just cheer your head off? We come to church and no one wants to say nothing. We're talking about a glorious, mighty, awesome God. The grace of God has changed our lives. Thank you. I mean, I've been just jacked up, man, this week, like thinking he, the light has been shining eternally. He's created light, and the light has came upon this earth, walked in our shoes, and has bridged the gap for us. God, here's some application. God will not leave you in your brokenness. Don't worry about live stream. I'm, I know I'm out of the picture. I don't care. I'm talking to you people. I'm talking to you right now. I'm going to get to you guys. I'm talking to this section. No, seriously. People are, they're living in darkness. People are living in darkness. Your family members, your your neighbors, the people you go to school with, the people that you rub shoulders with, the people that you work with, they're in darkness. They're in death's shadow. Some of them don't even know it. But some of them do. Some of them do. The Bible says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of all men. God has come and he's penetrated the darkness. He's, 
He's penetrated the, the rubble and the brokenness of people's lives, whether it's, whether it's caused by like addiction, too much alcohol, to escape life. People use alcohol to escape life, the stress of life, the trials of life, the hurts, the disappointments of life. People tap into drugs because they just, it just gives them this high. It's another escape method. And it leaves people broken. People tap into sexual sin thinking that it's just going to satisfy them. It's, it's going to... Um, it's going to, yeah, satisfy them. But here's the good news of the gospel. Doesn't matter what darkness, brokenness, sin is in your life, Jesus came to penetrate it. Jesus came. The Bible says where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So you might be really hung up on your past, a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, Right? A lot of darkness, but I'm here to tell you that Jesus has penetrated that darkness with his cross. And all that junk in your life can be forgiven in a moment when you confess that. The word confess, it literally means to agree with God. When you confess your sins, when you confess them to God, it means you're seeing your sin the way God sees it. You're agreeing about your sin. You're, you're seeing it the way God sees your sin. You're agreeing with God. You're in agreement. You're confessing, right? Repentance is change of heart, change of mind. So Jesus came to penetrate the darkness. And um, God can move you from the shadow of death into his marvelous light. I, I like what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Four and six. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. The light of the gospel. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Satan's aim is to keep people in the shadows of death. His aim is to keep unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. There is a spiritual light that shines through the gospel. It's clear. It's, it's marvelous. It's beautiful. And this light, and it is the light of the glory of Christ. The beauty of Christ. The work of Christ. Who he is and what he has done. It's a beautiful thing. But you have to see this light. You have to embrace it. We're going to talk about that in a moment. You know, light takes you out of the darkness, doesn't it? You know, if you're like me, well, just a random fact about me. I, uh, I sleep talk and I sleep walk. It's gnarly, man. Um, I, I like to trace it back to when I was in high school. Um, well, yeah. After high school, well, in, well, in high school, as, as you can see, it's not in my notes, so I'm fumbling everywhere. But in high school, I started working at a grocery store, and I had school, so I, I couldn't work, you know, during the day. But the manager, because I always just, you know, I don't know, I just always, like, 
believe, you know, hustle hard, grind hard, work hard. And so um, I just worked really hard. And he wanted to put me on night crew, but he couldn't because I was in high school. And um, I, think, I think all the, the craziness of sleep talking, sleep walking, I think it goes back to, you know, I, I was working more like middle of the night um, after high school. When I was in grad school, I worked um, the night shift at UPS. Um, so um, I understand how they handle all of your boxes. You don't want to know about it. You don't want to know, right? I mean, we was just chucking Dell boxes. I mean, chucking them Dell computer boxes. I mean, it's crazy. So if you sleep talk, sleepwalk, or you just maybe don't do that, but you get up at nighttime. You ever, anyone ever done that? Try to make your way to the restroom or to the fridge? Some of you are like, I never go to the fridge. Liar. Liar. I know some of you go to the fridge at nighttime. Don't, don't lie. It's hard to find certain things. You're in the dark. Light exposes the darkness. When you turn on a a light switch, everything is clear. This is what Jesus does. He can bring you out of darkness. And when the light is, when you encounter the light in your life, it makes everything else clear. Everything. Honestly, I don't see how people live without Christ in their life. How how do they make sense of the world? How do they work through what's right and wrong? Morality. How do they work through how the world, it's like there's pointers to a creator, to an intelligent designer, and that's God. But with Christ in your life, being the lens, the worldview in which you see everything, he makes everything clear. Everything clear. Now, that doesn't mean he answers all of our questions because sometimes we're left with doubts. And it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to be a, a believer with doubts. But sometimes we have doubts. Um, okay, we got, we got to move on. We got to really move on. I think this is going to be a two-part message right here. All right, John chapter, um, John chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. I want to read verse 15. John bore witness about him, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Here's point number two. Our mission is to testify about the light. Now, I had this whole section on unpacking the life of John. And so I'm skipping that section because I'm running out of time, okay? But let me just say this really, really quickly. Really quickly. Um, John, John's parents were Zachariah and Elizabeth, godly parents, serving in ministry, priestly line. They're waiting a long time for a baby. Elizabeth was barren. It's amazing how, you know, Barrenness is sometimes a roadblock which leads to a blessing in the Old Testament, in the New, right? And uh, they were waiting on God. They were praying to God. It says that uh, she conceived. He was filled with the Holy Spirit before birth. He was raised by God-fearing parents who knew the scriptures. He spent private years in the desert before public ministry began. He was called by God to prepare Jesus' way. And um, we know that he he received a front row seat to his baptism. He even said of of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Now, what does Luke tell us about John the Baptist? Luke 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You know, usually fathers name the child, but not here. Not here. God names the boy. God's John was God's gift to the world. John's name means God is gracious. When you look at the life of John, we don't have time to really chase all the details, but his life was marked by humility, right? He must increase, I must decrease, right? I'm, I'm unworthy to, to just to take the sandals off of his feet. His life was marked by greatness. You're going to see that in a moment. His, his life was, was marked by conviction. He confronted. It was a very dicey situation, and uh, we, know, we know that uh, he was thrown in prison, Eventually, he was beheaded. Notice what Jesus says about him in Luke 7, 24 to 28. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the, into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You know, I find it interesting. The world commends people to their face and talks about them behind their backs. You know what Jesus does? He does the exact opposite. He waits for John's disciples to leave, and then what does he do? He speaks highly of John, right? Let us follow the example of Christ. Let us follow his footsteps. Speak highly of people in front of others. Don't speak bad of, of someone to make yourself look good or avoid being, you know, avoid being a, a gossip, a busybody. The New Testament says, avoid being a critic. You know, there's always those people that are snipers for Jesus. They're always lasering in on someone else. Jesus ha has a lot to say about that. You know, be before you take the speck out of someone's eye, which is dinky, which is tiny, you can't really even see it, it's like a little grain of sand, before you try to find that in someone's life, deal with the bulging plank that's ripping your eyeball out of your head. That's what he's saying, right? It's a good point to remember about gossip. You know, avoid it. If you're not a part of the problem or the solution, don't get involved. Don't get involved. It's interesting how things get kind of quiet when you hit on certain things, you know? We're, we're all guilty. I'm guilty too as your pastor. Sometimes I gossip about other people. You know what? And sometimes it feels good in the moment. But you know what? The Holy Spirit is going to check you. And when he does check you, let yourself be checked. Let yourself be checked or you'll be wrecked. I think I should join the band, Richard. I could do a little spoken word rhyme action. No. Um, Jesus, here's what he does. He goes on record. He speaks highly of John. Behind his back, he speaks highly of John. Let that, let that be said of us. 
He asks these three rhetorical questions. What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? It's, it's, a, it's a meta- metaphorical for pushover. John the Baptist wasn't swayed by popular opinion, right? He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. He was a man with unshakable convictions. He was not a pushover. He held the line. Men, I got a word for you. In a day, in a culture in which we live, where people say there is no truth, listen, men, stand on truth. Stand on the word. We do not live for the applause of other people. We live for the audience of one. God is the one that we pursue, we live for. He's the one that we're hoping to hear these words, right? What are those words, church? Well done, good and faithful servant. Those are the words that we want to hear. And so this word is for everyone, but I think as men, we are called by God to be the spiritual leaders of our homes. And we're, we're, we are going to be held accountable by God for how we steward the truth, for how we steward our families. People are just caving. They're compromising on so many critical issues. I want to chase a few right now, but I really don't have time. But listen, you know what the issues are. I don't even have to say what the issues are. We got to hold to the scriptures. Let the scriptures have final say on everything. John, he was a man of unshakable convictions. He, was, he, was, he wasn't a pushover. He was a man dressed in soft, he, hold on, hold on. He was not a man dressed in soft clothing. I mean, his threads weren't frilly and lacy. He, he wasn't a preferred client at Nordstrom. John didn't dress to impress. He wore a garment of camel's hair with a leather belt and sandals. This dude probably to some people was a weird cat, right? I mean, they, they had to have thought, this guy's different. He's living out in the wilderness. He's eating bugs. He's calling people to repent of their sins. He's calling literally people to acknowledge that they need cleansing. He's preparing them for Jesus to ultimately cleanse their hearts from sin. This guy loves God. And I think to some people, either this guy loves God or this guy is crazy. Jesus goes on to record and and he tells the crowd that, that John the Baptist was a prophet. Actually, Jesus says he's more than a prophet. And Jesus cites Malachi 3.1. Look at it with me. Malachi 3.1. Behold, I, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Quick side note, real quick, real quick. Um, last time I checked, is there a temple in Jerusalem? There's no temple, right? There are desires and prayers and hopes and plans to rebuild the temple, right? We know the Temple Mount is controlled by, by Muslims. But Malachi 3.1, it's, it's, it's prophetic. It's a, it's a messianic pro, a prophecy that the Lord, that Jesus, so the messenger, John the Baptist, will prepare the way. The Messiah will come suddenly to his temple. 
he's already come to his temple. There is no temple. He's, he already came to it. Now notice in Math, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to the fathers. Least I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So tucked away in Malachi, we see this prophecy about the birth of John the Baptist. Remember what I said earlier? God breaks 400 years of silence. Malachi was the last living prophet to the nation of Israel. And one of God's last final words was this. A messenger is coming one who will pave the way for the Son of God. You know what I find it amazing? Several things. Number one, God makes promises and he keeps his, he keeps his promises. He's a promise-making God. He's a promise-keeping God. Right? He kept his word. He kept his promise. 400 years later, John the Baptist was sent. God makes a promise. God keeps his promises. And, and that's the kind of God that we worship, that we serve, that we adore that we love. This is the God of the Bible. He's a faithful God. And you know what? There's application. This truth, there's much application for us in our own lives. All the promises found in Christ are yes. God doesn't renege. God doesn't give a promise and take it away. No, he, he lavishes his promises upon us. And all the promises that we have in Christ are, are secure. It says in verse 7, speaking of John, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Let me say this. John's purpose was singular. Point people to Jesus. Actually, the term uh, bear witness is a legal term in the Greek. Bear witness testify, right? This is not John's opinion. Every time that word is used, it's in, it's in its legal nature. John came to bear witness, to testify. Very strong wording that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. And so John's purpose is our purpose. Our purpose is not to take up space our purpose is not to chase the Joneses, because here's the deal. The Joneses will always refinance on you. They'll always refinance on you. Keep chasing, you know? And if it's not them, it's going to be another family. Life is not about pursuing stuff. It's about pursuing the Savior. It's about pursuing this life that God has given to you in Christ. And our purpose should be John's purpose. Point people to Jesus. How do we do that? Twofold. With our words and with our lives. Are we verbally sharing, bearing witness, testifying to the grace of God in our lives? Jesus tells us to bear fruit. One of the ways we bear fruit, we share the gospel. Right? People get saved. That's fruit. Are we living out the gospel in our lives? Can people look at us and say, man, that, I see Christ in you. Point number three, you can receive the light or you can reject the light. You can receive or you can reject. You only have two options. John 1, 9 to 11. John 1, 9 to 11. 
says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The Jewish people were longing and waiting for a Messiah. When he came, they rejected him. Look at verses 12 and 13 of John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let me say this real quick. John, John's purpose is belief. He hammers belief, hammers it over and over and over and over again. And I said last week, it's not this intellectual belief. It's simple trust. It's reliance upon Christ. Are we relying on Christ and his sacrifice, his life, his death alone for our eternal redemption. I've got so much more I want to say. But this is going to be a part two. But let me say this. Next week, because I had four points and we got to point three. So next week, I want to flush out the rest of verses 12 to 18. But let me leave you with this thought. You only have two options with Jesus. Either you receive him and you believe in his name. Notice what John said. Those two things are the exact same thing. Receiving Christ into your life is believing in his name. When you believe in Christ, you receive him. When you receive him, you believe in him. It's it's the same concept. You know, it reminds me of the parable of the guy that found a treasure in the field. And what did he do? He left, he sold everything, and he bought that field. And we're going to flesh that out next week. What does it mean to receive Christ as ultimate treasure? It means to abandon everything. It means to see the supremacy, the worth, the value, the beauty, the glory of Christ higher than any other thing in your life. That's what it means to receive Christ. We're going to talk about that next week. Let's pray.